This is the Land and Legacy Podcast, brought to you by Whitetail Properties Real Estate. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your weekly resource for habitat management, wildlife management, and recreational real estate. We hope you guys enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome back. This podcast will go down as one of my all-time favorites, and we, you know, I, I can't stress how much I enjoyed this conversation, this recording, and all the 400, almost 500 podcasts we've done. Um, this one is going to rank probably in my top 10 for sure, and, I, and I'm almost embarrassed in the fact that it took Matt and I so long to get um, this guest on. Um, you know, we have nothing but respect for Dr. Bronson Strickland and all the guys at MSU, uh, wildlife department, MSU deer lab, got a great podcast, great social media going on over there. Um, Matt and I just, you know, we follow along with a lot of our favorites and see all their research. And then we always look at their research and say, how does this affect me as a landowner? How does this affect my clients as landowners? And, um, so between Bronson, Steve and Dr. Craig Harper and, uh, Marcus, Dr. Marcus Lashley, uh, Dr. Will Goolsby, and I know there's people, Dr. Mike Chamberlain, Dr. Brett Collier, um, and I know I might forget somebody else in there and I'm nothing but sorry. Um, but you know, all these guys kind of help and over time have influenced with their research, confirming, um, not only just confirming, but um, helping Matt and I um, see this new research, then apply it, but also just confirm suspicions or hypothesis that we had um, or just gut, gut feelings about uh, land management. So this is a really good podcast, I think, personally, and I hope you guys enjoy it too. And... Um, before we jump in, remember Land and Legacy 20 Onyx, um, Onyx app. That's a 20% discount. Great app to use on your farm um, with all their new features and all the things that they continue to build upon. It's not only for Western public ground hunters or public land hunters. It is for the private landowner. And I hope you guys don't miss out on that. And when you do, get that app. Look up Land and Legacy 20 to um, get that 20% discount. So, Guys, enjoy the show. All right, we're going to jump right into this one. This is a um, very exciting podcast for us. Matt, I feel a little bad because you say that it seems like every week you're like, I'm excited for this one, and, and we are excited <laughs> each and every week. But when we have a guest on, it gets the excitement gets turned up a little bit because, you know, with busy schedules and traveling and trying to do our jobs, it ultimately leads to where it's one of the reasons why we don't often have guests because trying to line up our schedules is a challenge enough and trying to line up another guy's schedule is, is much more challenging. And we put this one on the books a weeks ago and uh, lo and behold, right before it happens, I get a call, Hey, can you make it to this, to, to the ranch in West Oklahoma? And I was like, I have one commitment and that's Tuesday morning. We have to record a podcast. So here I am in western Oklahoma recording. Matt, I think you're back home from a consulting trip. Yep, 
and, for a little bit. And then so and then we have our guest, Mr. or Dr. Bronson Strickland. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Bronson. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate what, what you guys do, and I, I'm a listener of your, your podcast as well, so happy to be here. Well, likewise, you know, and big shout-out. You guys do uh, the Deer Lab podcast, Mississippi State Deer Lab. Shoot, you guys have been doing it now how many years? I believe we're on year four. There you go. I don't think we've rounded the corner of five years, but maybe maybe four years, something like that. That's very awesome. And, and I completely understand and can relate with uh, scheduling guests and so forth. <laughs> it, uh, it it becomes a challenge. I always, at the end of the year, wish we were able to record more episodes, but that's just that's real life, trying to schedule time with busy people. So yeah. we, we do as many as we can possibly do. Yeah, and yeah. that for us, it, you said it much more politely it's it's a bit of a challenge it's a nightmare if you ask me sometimes <laughs> because it's just like my goodness this is a disaster trying to schedule and you end up bumping back bumping back bumping back and you realize oh man what I wanted to talk about timely never happened so we'll wait till next year when it's when it's timely again but yeah we appreciate you coming on and we appreciate um, just the work you guys do down there at the deer lab and putting out great research and helping Matt and I understand, you know, our job better and helping educate landowners as well. So um, a big, big prop to you guys. And, and I encourage all of our listeners, if they aren't already, I mean, I would, I would, I would believe that most of our listeners are listening to you guys' podcast as well. So we thank you for that. Yeah, you bet. All right. So this is a, a topic that I believe when it came out, it was just like, very fascinating to me to uh, to see what you guys had going on. Um, but before we really get into this research project, let's hear, just in case there's somebody living under a rock somewhere that's not aware of who you are, could you give us a little bit of about, about yourself? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so I will, I will glaze over uh, the, the details. Bottom line <laughs> is right now, I am uh, the Extension Wildlife Specialist at Mississippi State University. So I work, work for the Extension Service. And what that means is my job is primarily outreach. So if you were to contrast my job with Steve Damaris, who's co-director of the MSU Deer Lab with me, uh, Steve's primary focus is traditional teaching in the classroom as well as research. Uh, whereas my job is my teaching is to landowners, biologists, hunters, etc. And so Steve and I collaborate on research, research that we think is meaningful, that our state wildlife agency, NBWFMP, thinks is meaningful. And then the responsibility lies on me to get that information out in, in various forms. So that, again, landowners, managers, hunters can understand and apply that information. So we do things like traditional te technical publications on the scientific side to, to vet the research we've done to make sure that what we're saying is agreed upon by the scientific community. And then the next step is we get it out in popular articles or books or on our website, now our podcasts and social media even. And so uh, that's pretty much uh, what I spearhead with the Deer Lab is is getting information out so so people can understand it and use it. Mm. 
Awesome. Yeah, I know. I know when you guys launched the podcast, it was like, oh, this is perfect. I mean, each and every week we can hear about some of the research you've got going on and just different tidbits. And, you know, probably in the in the last couple of years, the most enjoyable thing that I found was your guys's final forage challenge you did coming up on a year ago. Um, yeah. And, and studying different uh, different forage types and preference. And I, I got to ask. I mean, I'm planning on having a podcast with Steve on that later, but were you just completely, I mean, were you completely shocked or were you like, oh, you know, go figure? I was uh, blown away. (laughs) I was blown away (laughs) because, you know, I mean, everyone, uh, you have your plan, you have your bet, you know, I know deer and this, this ought to be uh, the, the forage that, that they select. And some of them, uh, the deer followed my script. And on some of them, uh, <laughs> they followed Marcus Lashley and Steve Damaris's script. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing we always qualify with that, we, we, we did that for fun. And, you know, it, it was educational moments to talk about deer and talk about their foraging behavior and plants they commonly uh, select. But uh, they were also re- research deer. And mm-hmm. so research pen deer and deer are individuals and then having them confined where most of their diet is a pelleted ration yeah. uh, is probably also going to influence. So like, in other words, I remember one time, one of the winners was poison Ivy. Uh-huh. Um, I'm never because of that result going to say, you gotta have more poison Ivy out in, <laughs> yeah. the, out in the woods. You know, I, I think a lot of that was just circumstantial, you know, no doubt. Yeah. I yeah. think for me, when 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 the the winner, if you will, was announced, I I did almost a Tiger Woods like the underhand fist bump with a few steps in because it was like, you know, I, I love the power of native forage. So when a, that winner was selected, uh, it was like, oh my gosh, like this is so awesome. But then once again, when you throw it in the real world and you consider this a, that this was captive deer you're like okay we'll take it with a little bit of a grain of salt but still we have to understand that there is a power of native forage on the landscape absolutely and just as an example that maybe people can relate to is um you know the, the those deer again their diet 99 percent of it is, is coming from a pellet and they consume just about everything that's within our our pens our enclosures so w- when you introduce any type of uh, forage plants, and it, it can be forages that we think are, you know, not very good, not nutritious, and in the wild not selected that often, deer will come up and jerk it out of your hand. And, a, you know, a great example of that would be sweet gum. Mm. I mean, mm. anybody in the South is familiar. We know, unless it's coming right up out of a, a stump sprout or something, you know, we know that's not a highly preferred but uh, the way I reconcile it is that it's novel. It would be like if I ate Cheerios every single day and you introduce something different to me, I'm going to try it because I'm, I'm craving something different. Yeah, I Definitely. totally relate to that. I'm, uh, um, my personal favorite and a little bit of an unhealthy selection is is cashew chicken. And my daughter, uh, she she – apparently gained that for me and so she's three and so we'll ask her hey what do you want for for lunch and she yeah I mean seems like seven out of ten times you ask her she says chicken and rice okay Mm -hmm. and there was a point where I was like I told my wife I said 
Maya has almost made it to where I'm kind of sick of chicken and rice right now. <laughs> so <laughs> if you're eating the same thing over and over, I can understand, yeah. Uh, sweet gum yeah. leaf doesn't sound half bad if you're used to the pellets. But, yeah, um, you know, another – oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say <clears throat> that, that can lead into a whole other discussion, but one I think that we should have in the future is, um, with that being said, areas that have the opportunities supplementally bait and corn piles and this and that, like how that then affects consumption rates and percentages of annual or daily diets then the selectivity of the browse within that landscape where bait is always available, that would be something uh, very interesting to talk about and learn more from uh, in another podcast. But, but while we were mm-hmm. talking about that, I was like, mm, that, that would be a good discussion to have uh, down the road. Yeah, you're ultimately you're exactly right. You're bringing up uh, the challenge I had last night, Matt, when I wrote these notes. It was like, okay, we're finally going to have Bronson on. And we're going to shoot for 45 minutes to an hour. <laughs> what? Yeah. Now let's let's try to yeah. narrow this down. Do we talk mineral stumps? Do we talk the final footage? Did we talk? Okay, let's just focus on the task at hand, Adam. Let's talk about this research first. That's right. That's right. And I think, honestly, right before we dive into the research, I think it would not be a bad idea, um, if you would, Bronson, just give a quick recap for all those who don't understand like how this research um, is collected, how, how you guys pull all the information, working with grad students, um, grants and, and everything. Like, how do, how do you guys come up with this to be able to study it? Um, because again, like this is a multi-year process to be able to, you know, research all this. It takes so much time and energy. So like just a quick people who, again, don't know how the research is collected. Can you go over that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and every project differs. There's, you know, subtleties and nuance with every project. But this one in particular, uh, it, it began with a persistent question uh, from hunters, feedback from hunters going to our state wildlife agency, the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks, and essentially boil it down like this. Why are deer over there pointing to another region of the state? Why are their deer so much bigger than our deer? What can we do about it? And it has to be genetics. It has to be that over there in that region, they are genetically different. And therefore, what we need to do is we need to capture deer from the big antler region and move them, translocate them to the small antler region and that's going to solve all of our problems. Yeah. <laughs> now, the the biologist type is going to look at that and go, well, you, you have completely left out environment, mm-hmm. the influence of environment or habitat or landscape scale, uh, nutrition, et cetera. But keep in mind the the one thing that, that uh, you know, in hindsight, it was good to do this research because in the southeast, we have this legacy of restocking. Right. And for those that, that are younger, you know, and uh, it's so hard to comprehend now. But you know, even me at my age, when I grew up, it was a novelty. It was run home and tell your dad I saw a deer. Mm. It was a really, really big deal. Yeah. So for all southeastern states is you had uh, genetic sources from up north, like with Wisconsin, uh, Kentucky, Ohio, et cetera. 
And you also had sources from places like Texas and Mexico. And, and so someone that's really not trained in this field, it's logical. It's logical to go down that road and say, well, the deer down here, they must be from Mexico or they must be from Texas. And over there in that region where they're bigger, that's those Wisconsin genes are being expressed up there. Yeah. And so that was really that that uh, that rumble, that rumble for years and years and years. We're not happy. We want to know why it must be genetics. And hey, pointing the finger at state agency, what are you all going to do about it? Mm. And so it finally reached a point where, all right, we're going to jump in with both feet. This is a heck of a commitment. It was a heck of a commitment to the state agency and their staff, the hours and hours and hours they spent uh, collecting data. And it was a commitment at, at Mississippi State because you get into this and go, no way at all. This is under a 10-year study. So you're, you're really putting all your chips on the table there that we got to make the most of this project. So after that, it was, uh, uh, you know, all hands on deck to, to capture deer. And then once deer were captured and brought back to the research facility, and then it's just collecting data. And that's where graduate students came in and they would write their their thesis uh, or dissertation based on what what the findings were. And so that that's kind of the the short story of how it took place. Mm. I, Very nice. You know, when when I first saw this, I, I was brought back to, you know, my teenage years and even when I was in college about Missouri has, I mean, a pretty drastic difference. It sounds like Mississippi as well, where northern Missouri deer are, we all picture, if you're down south, you just picture giant bucks. And then if you're down south or if you're up north, you picture like German shepherd size Ozark deer. Like there's this huge difference between the two. And everybody's like, I remember talking to people that were, you know, outdoor outdoor television people saying well they're just totally different deer that genetically speaking they're just totally different well then you look at the restocking program and uh in the early in the mid 1900s um they took ozark deer southern missouri deer and restocked them in northern missouri so it's like well they're they're the same genetics it's just there's a there's a difference there and what is that and and that's why this this research is just fascinating that's right And, and i think every state uh, again, especially just going back to the Southeast because of the restocking that took place. I think everybody has, has a story like that. And I remember when I was an undergraduate, uh, I was a technician at the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study or SQUIDUS. And I remember some of the air quote here, some of the old timers and that, now I'm an old timer, so I don't mean that in a negative <laughs> way, but some of the old timers remembering back and talking about how uh, during some restocking, deer that were taken from coastal barrier islands. So we're talking about those tiny little island deer, you know, think more along the lines of key deer or something mm-hmm. like that. Not that extreme, but we're, we're going down that, that continuum there and released into more of the interior part of Georgia where there was a mix of, of forest and agriculture and so forth at that time. And they just all marveled, you know, even way back when they were, they were like, it's nutrition. We had those little deer and released them over there and bam, you know, you've got now these 200 pound bucks and, you know, uh, big antlers and so forth. So there were a few people that saw it even, you know, 40, 50 years ago, saw what was going on. Wow. And, all. and hey, we can even go back to, um, I don't know if y'all are familiar with the, uh, he recently 
passed away, Valerius Geist. He was he was kind of on the frontier of this, looking back at um, pre-World War II European studies. And that, that was really some of the first documentation of uh, the guy's name, Franz Vogt. And uh, he did research essentially exactly like we did. We kind of mimicked what he did, but with roe deer and red deer, getting them from very poor regions and then just giving them a really good diet and looking at intergenerational change in body and antler size and, and just demonstrated the power of nutrition. Mm. So we essentially took that framework and applied it here in Mississippi. No kidding. Wow. I, speaking of roe deer, the first deer my grandpa ever killed was in World War II in Germany. He shot it, and I, he always talked about how tiny those deer were. So, I, yeah. yeah, it's just, yeah, that's, that's very interesting that you guys replicated something from way back and not even in the same continent. Well, hey, it, it was a, it was a good design. <laughs> yeah, learned a lot from it. The yeah. principles were the same. You guys just used different uh, different deer, different regions. That's right. Yeah, it that's very the- that's very cool. So, you know, as as this research progressed, let's let's start kind of unpacking how that how that all unfolded. Okay, so a uh, little bit of background of, of what we did. So. Um, in our experiment, I'm going to kind of simplify. We can wrap up, and uh, I don't know if y'all do show notes and, and things like that, but we can provide a link if people want to read the study. They could have <clears throat> a lot more detail. I'm going to simplify it to um, it was a three-region study. I'm just going to talk about two. I'm going to drop out the one in the middle. So we have this one region that we call the Delta region, and that is essentially our agricultural region. And if you want to know what the landscape looks like, think Iowa, think Illinois, et cetera. It's most of the landscape is dominated by agriculture with patches and corridors of forest, bottomland hardwoods and things like that. Contrast that with the what we call the LCP, which is an acronym for the Lower Coastal Plain Physiographic Region of Mississippi. It is dominated by uh, more sandy soils, higher rainfall, and the crop, so to speak, in that region is forests and primarily pine trees. And primarily on top of that, I would say uh, industrial pine forests. Mm. So managing for a pine forest that's going to, you know, for most of the duration of the stand is going to capture the site capture most of the sunlight because they're growing pine trees for profit. Mm -hmm. So we have two completely different regions. And uh, if you look at wild deer from those regions, you're looking at anywhere from, you know, on mature bucks, say 20 to 30 pound difference in body weights for mature bucks. And similarly, 20 to 25 inch difference in Boone and Crockett score. And so, again, that's kind of the reason we're killing 100 class deer and they're killing 130 class deer. Yeah. And we want we want some of that. (laughs) Okay, so so we have those those regions. And again, there was another one in the middle, but we'll we'll not talk about that. Um, So the first first things first was to capture does. So that was the, quote, sample that was taken from each of those regions. 
is going out and live capturing pregnant females. And we're just assuming at the time of year, you know, they're, they're, they're pregnant. And then those pregnant does from those regions are brought back to our research facility where they had their fawns. Once the fawns had been weaned, the adult doe that came from the different regions, she's out of the study, no longer a consideration. And every one of those fawns, they're housed in different enclosures, meaning there's an enclosure area for the delta fawns, enclosure area for the lower coastal plain fawns. And then they're all given ad lib as much as they want to eat. They're all given the exact same diet. Mm. So that's really that that's the setup from from where we began. About how many about how many fawns were were in this? Uh, study site it, it, it's research and there's always mortality so mm-hmm. you're, you're talking about beginning with about uh 30 30 okay. plus was always the target yep. does from each region and then their fawns most of them are going to be twins and then you know there's typically a more or less equal sex ratio so mm-hmm. you're kind of in, ending up with probably 50 Fawns, and you're probably gonna have about twenty five or bucks, and you know twenty five okay. or does, give yeah. or take. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. And I, okay, so I'm sitting here, and and so you got you know that number of does, and and pardon me, but I have ADHD. If if nobody is aware of that, but you've got these three regions, and I'm just curious. The other region, the only reason you didn't, we're not really talking about it, is it kind of fell in the middle, it looked like, in the research. Like, you had the delta on one extreme, the lower coastal on the other, and then this one kind of fell in the middle. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I'm not covering anything up. It's just literally in terms of uh, the phenotype of the deer and and the habitat, it fell right in the middle. And that's the thin, how do you pronounce that? Thin... (laughs) It depends on who you ask. <laughs> That's why I'm asking. I want to hear how you pronounce it. Well, around here, uh, it is pronounced uh, lurse as if there is an R in there. <laughs> so the thick lurse uh, and thin lurse regions. And I'll tell you what, something interesting. For the longest time, I just thought that was a Mississippi slang. You know, when I first got here, I'm like, how in the world are you getting lurse out of a out of a word that's spelled L-O-E-S-S. And someone, about two years ago, it took forever to find this out, that it's a derivation from a German word that that more closely resembles that pronunciation, hence the R sound in there. That is funny. Hmm. That's why we avoided it, though, is you were just like, <laughs> right. I don't want to have to pronounce that and then explain it. <laughs> yeah, so some people say, if you're not from around here, you'd say Los. Lois yeah. or Lois, yeah. but uh, around here it's pronounced Lurs. Well, the reason I ask is in western Iowa, there's the, the Lus Hills spelled the same way as this. And I was like, I wonder mm-hmm. how they say it down there, because I'll guarantee you Iowa people and Mississippi people aren't saying it the same way. That's exactly right. Yeah. Lurs. Some of the cultural differences, yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Well, that's cool. Sorry to derail where we were going here, but I had to ask. Yeah. So, yeah, so I guess to, to wrap that up, yeah, so there, there was a deer and, and associated habitat landscape characteristics that are kind of in the middle. The mm. delta is kind of at the extreme of really good. The lower coastal is the extreme of, of really poor or relatively poor. 
And then the, the Lurse Hills is kind of right in the middle. That transition line. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. When, when we're talking the, the Delta is filled with crop. Now this is down South and, and you compared it to Iowa and Illinois. What is the main crops of, of the Delta? Um, soybean, I believe, uh, gosh, some of my, my crops extension colleagues probably correct me on this, but I I can look it up later. But bottom line is it's these big four. It is soybean, corn, cotton, rice. Okay. Those are the biggies. And, and I believe the biggest, in fact, I'm almost positive is soybean. Okay. Um, in, in terms of who is number two, I don't know if it's cotton or corn, mm-hmm. but um, most of the landscape. And, and then remember, rice is kind of in areas relative to uh, the topography mm-hmm. where, you know, they can hip it up and, and, and flood it and so forth. But when you're riding through the Delta, the thing you most commonly see are soybean and corn. Gotcha. So it's, it is very similar to Illinois and Iowa, just a little warmer throughout the year. Yes little bit longer growing season. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And, and when I picture, when you say industrial pine, I'm just picturing like heavily managed where it's just like everything, everything done is, is devoted to healthy pine trees. So probably heavy herbicide now rather than fire management. Is that a correct assumption? For the, for the most part. Yes. Yeah. So there's going to be uh, a pretty intense, not, not as intense now as it used to be, as I understand, but pretty intensive uh, site preparation, including herbicide mm-hmm. where, and the, the way to really, if you're not familiar with that type of forest management is think of the way uh, a producer manages corn is they want the corn plant uh, to, to capture the site. They don't want any competition from, from other vegetation. Uh, they want corn receiving all of, of, of the sun's energy coming in. All of the sunlight needs to be allocated to corn to maximize bushels per acre. And, and that's essentially what we're doing with that type of forestry is, um, is you're, you know, you're maximizing the number of stems per acre so that you can uh, maximize, uh, capture as much sunlight without compromising on growth. And so that's, of course, where where foresters come in and they look at site index and what their rotation is going to be and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to have the right trees per acre such that um, and then, you know, when is the thinning going to be and so forth. But essentially the crop, the crop for that area are pine trees. Yeah. Yeah. And then depending on the length of the rotation, you're going to have a couple thinnings, usually two, sometimes it may be three. And uh, it's usually it's that establishment where we have uh, deer habitat and, and, and wildlife habitat. <clears throat> and then when you start getting in that seventh, eighth or so year, that is when, and I keep using that term over and over again, but capturing the site, that is when you start getting the pine trees, the canopy starts closing the canopies uh, start touching and intercepting more or less all of the sunlight, you know, Mm -hmm. 90 plus percent of it. And as you both well know, now you have problems because sunlight is not hitting the forest floor and there is the demise of food and cover. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it just becomes heavily, heavy pine needles. Yeah. Yeah. 
That, yeah. That's right. And, and you know, and, I, I talked to Will Goolsby about this, and, and it seems like as, as herbicide has been the use for controlling these, the understory, it seems like you really only have, if there is sunlight, it seems like it's broom sedge um, is, is the dominating mm-hmm. species. And you're like, well, they're not eating that. So even if there is sunlight, the herbicide is not really allowing um, a lot of beneficial forbs and herbaceous plants to, to be growing there. That, that certainly can be going on. It, you know, it's going to depend on uh, the type of herbicide and other herbicides that were the tank mix and that their residual time. And, and, and then often what can happen is when that, uh, that residual time or the, the effective time of that herbicide may be wearing off, you may also have missed your sunlight window. Mm-hmm. So now you're not having as much sunlight getting through the canopy and therefore you're not getting that herbaceous, you know, and especially Forbes, you're not, you're not getting that response because of oh, that. Man. Yeah. I think it's pretty easy to, to see and paint the picture that obviously this site, this region of the state isn't nearly as productive as other regions based on the, the large landscape use. And that's why you see the, the lack of expression in larger body weights and, and uh, general phenotype antlers. It's just not the yeah, yeah. And, and the way I, I like to explain it, I, I have this very nice regression showing uh, where we went to that region and we looked at. Uh, so so every dot on the map is a population. Uh, there are population uh, hunting clubs, part of the deer management assistance program from MDWFMP. And we looked at every single hunting club. And then got out the, you know, the, the equivalent of Google Earth, even though that this was 15 years ago before Google Earth. And we looked at, okay, we have for this property, this is the average antler size and had a robust number of samples, so a very reliable sample. This is the average antler size of that property. Let's compare that to what proportion of their property is closed canopy pine forest. Go in, take it into GIS, digitize it, get your proportions. And it was as unfortunate but beautiful of a relationship as you can hope for in biology and ecology. It was just the steady linear decline as you move from 20, 30, 40 up to 70, 80, 90% of the property was closed canopy pine forest. Then you would see a corresponding decrease in population level antler size Mm. and and that is not i always follow up with i'm not saying shame on pine trees the pine trees didn't do anything bad here that's right you you would you would have the exact same uh response if it were hardwoods managed that same way in closed canopy um the bottom line is is that the management activities or the way the landscape on that property is managed you are trading off timber for food. Mm. Simple as that. Mm. And, Sounds, and, uh, and then and then you think about all the timber country in the in the in the, in the country that is closed canopy and hardly ever managed, hardly ever thinned. Right. Oh, right. That's disheartening. Adam, you've got another proponent of uh, diversity, landscape diversity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So anyway. So that's ultimately where you've selected all these these does from, and uh, you've taken them back. They've had fawns. Mm-hmm. 
you've taken the fawns yeah. now and you've put them in 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 their pen or in their in their area and you've started feeding them all the exact same diet exact same diet all they can eat and what we fully expected and predicted uh was that at year three that's when we really started looking at you know all right now they're you know they're they're inching towards they're closer to maturity they ought to be kind of expressing what they are going to more fully express at, at maturity and plus we, we couldn't we couldn't do the study where we had to wait to six and a half years of age and then and then repeat it and to go to six and a half years of age again yeah. or to been a 20-year study instead of a you know 10-year study so yeah we, we wanted to get this done in our careers you know but um <laughs> yeah <laughs> so what blew us away and had steve and i and others eating some humble pie was that in that first generation so and this is a very very important detail the bucks that are now three and a half years of age in our research facility that have eaten the exact same diet as their counterparts from the delta they were conceived remember in the wild they were conceived in the wild from a free-ranging mother and a free-ranging father they just grew up born and grew up in our facility so at three years of age those little old lower coastal plain deer remained little old lower coastal plain deer mm. we saw hardly any effect at all of this increased diet quality on their phenotype as we measured with with body weight and, and antler size little bit of a difference in antler size and if i remember correctly one pound one pound difference at three and a half years of age of the research deer versus the free-ranging lower coastal plain deer Wow. So we started, holy moly, did we underestimate here? There's got to be some genetic legacy we didn't think about and blah, 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 blah. But the study design was, is we, we, we repeat it now, now with mothers, mothers now that were raised on good nutrition. So keep in mind when we brought those does from the wild to our pens, as we spoke earlier, they had buck fawns and they had doe fawns. So those doe fawns are now growing up with all the food they can eat. And then we allowed them to breed. So now we're breeding the, the previous doe fawns are now adults. Mm -hmm. We allow them to breed with the, you know, the Delta bucks are breeding with Delta does, lower coastal plain bucks are breeding with coastal plain does and this is where the magic happened so we call this the f2 is the technical term but it's the second generation and this is where <clears throat> we we finally figured out that yep it absolutely is nutrition it just takes longer than we thought so now those bucks gained on average in the lower coastal plain they are now 36 pounds, 36, 36 pounds heavier than their wild counterparts. And remember, just, just a few years earlier, the first generation was one pound heavier. Hmm. These are 36 pounds heavier. Wow. And antler size, those bucks are now 28 inches larger than their free-ranging counterparts. The lower coastal plains second generation 
exceeds now the free ranging Delta antler scores. Mm. So we just saw this tremendous switch. Um, and going back again, at where we started earlier in our conversation, when I was talking about Valerius Geis and the pre-World War II research, started digging into this epigenetic effect. And uh, the, the way I typically explain this is everybody's familiar with the term genetics and uh, genome and genotype. Your, your genotype is your genetic blueprint. Mm-hmm. Think, think of it. Adam or Matt, as if um, <clears throat> I'm going to build my dream home and you work with an architect and who all, and you come up with this blueprint of your dream home and you get halfway through the process and uh oh, lumber just went up, uh oh, so and so lost their job, uh, you know, whatever, come up with whatever <laughs> reason you want and you go, we're not going to be able to build this house completely according to blueprint. We're not going to be able to add on that part or that level or that room or that garage or whatever. You still have the blueprint that you can build on later. But in the short term, based on your your money, you had to economize. You could only build what you could afford to build in the short term. That is essentially the phenomenon we think pretty sure is going on here is the epigenetic effect where within the genome of these deer is far greater flexibility to express different characteristics. Mother nature is just giving the mother, the doe mother in this case, the cue based on stress, based on nutrition, whether or not to express that part of their genome. And so, Evolutionarily, it, it's really a beautiful thing in terms of adaptability and colonizing a new area and things like that. You, you have more flexibility embedded within you to, to be larger, to grow bigger antlers, et cetera, et cetera, all sorts of characteristics. You just need to match that with the environment that your mother grew up in and that you're growing up in. Hmm. Fascinating. That and, is- and it's you think about uh you know kind of the human race and how we've changed over time and just general living situations like i live in a warm house every single night but there was many many people generations before that were out on the plains camping every single night it's like you know it's 20 degrees tonight i don't know if i'd make it out there but over time we see like the 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 intensity or like i would say the manliness um change it's like how did they make it back then it's yeah. being the same thing. Um, and, and, you know, in humans over time, develop and change. Uh, I, I think it's a similar kind of illustration there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you two, uh, two, two relatable human examples. First is that uh, World War II. And so there were uh, some towns, cities that were under siege for a long period of time. And so, these humans were, were in essentially starvation mode for a long time. And what researchers found out later in life was that that cohort, cohort of, of, of kids and grandkids were more or less marked, so to speak, by the legacy of that severe, severe nutritional nutri- uh, restriction and stress 
caused by that siege. Wow. And so it's like your body has a memory. I went through this really, really intense struggle. And so I'm not going to program, you know, the, the fetus that's developing. We're going to switch some of these genes on. We're going to switch them off. And I'm, I'm oversimplifying. But um, to, to shape the, the phenotype of my offspring. And one good example, also, my uh, my friend and colleague, Randy DeYoung, down at Texas A&M Kingsville, always says, talking about maternal effects and nutrition, is we always think about when you hear about George Washington and reading biographies on him and so forth, one of the, the things that was always said about him, he was so stately because he was such a large man. He was head and shoulders above the crowd, you know. He just looked like this big military, you know, leader because of his his body size and his height. He he was a little over six foot. Huh. Wow. No one nowadays with our, <laughs> you know, nutrition and how much food overabundance of, of food we have now. Yeah. No one would look at someone six foot and say he's towering over, you know, all the other men. But yeah. that that just kind of shows you. Uh, the impact that your environment plays a huge part in your potential. Absolutely. Yeah. It's fascinating that there, there's so much maternal influence. Um, it's like, you know, her body <clears throat> has experienced this. So I, like, like you said, I'm pre-programmed my fetus, my offspring to be able to make it in this same environment. Cause that's where I'm dropping that fawn. And then right. as you move down the line, that fawn's, next generation it's in a completely different environment so you see that flexibility over time become expressed um Mm -hmm. i i I know we're going to get to this i want to ask it now but i I won't i'll ask it but don't answer it but in my mind immediate goes to so what does this mean for landowners but i know there's more to tell with the study um so uh, let's just keep going there well, I, I, I think that that may be a, a great place to transition to now. Um, the, the bottom line from, from the study is that nutrition matters. Nutrition matters very, very much, but it, it often can be an intergenerational response before you see the true big picture manifestation of, mm. of, of good nutrition. So we think of, you know, uh, there, there's always going to be little inputs. So thank guys in your work, uh, what we would call a, a year effect scientifically. Uh, body weights are up or KFI is up or down. It's a year effect mm-hmm. because this year we, it was a drought year or this year it was a flood year. This year we had mass, you know, so much mass this year and we didn't the year before. A year effect could also be, um, for years and years and years, a producer planted soybean and he switched to cotton. You know, you're going to see that manifestation in real time that year. So there's always going to be that going on. Uh, but what we're talking about with, with this type of effect is more of a longer term intergenerational. And the way we phrase it is nutrition is important. It's not just what the buck eats. It's what mm-hmm. his mother ate and sometimes what his grandmother ate. That that's really gives you these long, bigger, big picture, longer term trends explaining differences in antler size throughout the U.S. Mm. I think it's important to note, too, you know, factoring in age to that equation as well and allowing 
let's say regions or neighborhoods to have enough deer, um, bucks specifically of age, let's say a sample size in a region to show this. And I think there's some regions across the country, whether it's regulations, hunting pressure, where they hardly have enough um, deer in the population to truly get a great understanding of what is that end potential, just because there's not a ton of them out there. And, and to be able to yeah. see the flexibility maybe um, in, in a herd that doesn't have mature deer in it um, may be difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we have the luxury, you know, it's easier for us to, to tease apart these types of effects because we have captive animals and we're not dealing with hunter harvest and hunter bias as mm-hmm. well. You know, yeah. when you're dealing with this and, you know, a lot of my career, I've, I work with the DMAP data set and hunter harvest. But man, there, there are issues, especially when you start getting to to smaller properties. Um, it, it's hard to get truly a random sample of what the buck, whether you're talking about body weight or antler size of what it is, because it really depended on what a handful of hunters that hunted a handful of times decided to shoot or not shoot. Yeah. And we try to use that for inference. And sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong. And I, I'm thinking of like Delta deer. Let's just take a, a, a an area, a couple thousand acres in the Delta and say, for whatever reason, there's not much hunting pressure going on here. And that and the, the deer population has increased dramatically and there's, there's too many deer. How does that play into, you know, even though they're in the Delta and food is pretty abundant but there's an, a huge amount of deer so native forage yeah. is is le, uh, is lower on the landscape the amount is is less so does that affect their potential well um what what, what i'm hearing is uh we can never discount density dependence either mm-hmm. so all of these issues are, are going to be superseded by well, look at it this way. You, you have diminished or nullified the the nutrition effect if you have too many deer. Yeah. You Now you don't have enough forage to go around. It doesn't matter if you're in an ag region or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wonder how, if, if that happens, because I think of like Iowa and Illinois, places where the population's got too, too out of control, is like, okay, let's just say you did thin it back. Are we looking, you know, and, and I'm asking you uh, to... to pull off your researcher cap and just play game with me and say the what if and say, well, would we have to then wait a couple of generations to, to get that behind us where there was too many deer? Or is that something where it's like we thinned out a hundred deer in this thousand acre chunk next year, they'll be better. They'll be healthier. I, I think that would depend on the extent of nutritional deprivation mm-hmm. and for how long it had been. So yeah. If you had had intergenerational deprivation, I think it's going to be intergenerational response coming out of it. Yeah. If it was all of a sudden, hey, for three years in a row, nobody harvested does. We noticed body weight went down 10 to 15 pounds. You know, I, I think you're going to come out of that relatively quick. In yeah. a couple of years, I think you're, you're right back where you started. I think another kind of factor... <clears throat> You see it and talk about it quite a bit um, in the crop ground, especially with crop ground and different crops that you guys may have down south and, and then the efficiency of harvesting and then, you know, what's done to the field after harvest with fizzle plowed or this, whatever. Um, but but in crop ground, typically there is an abundance of food during the growing season. 
And then resource, food is a scarce resource during the winter time frame. So I, I see this like almost within the year, um, you have times where it's kind of a feast or famine situation. And I, and I feel like this expression um, of what you see, what would, I guess a, a determining factor would have to be like the stress applied to that animal during the time of kind of famine mode, that winter stress period, if food is limited in that area. So you might be on a crop ground, but is tons of food during growing season, but then they have a really stressful period too. Uh, how do you yeah, think that right. would work? Well, th that is actually something uh, I've witnessed, and it actually goes back to something Valerius Geist noted in that pre-World War II research, was that, uh, number one, is that, you know, you have this, this really big effect of the, the growing season nutrition. I mean, that, that's really the single most important thing. But what the researcher also noted was how good of condition the buck is going into the next growing season is also really important. Absolutely. So meaning if, you know, you have a buck that's in really good condition, that's not 20 pounds underweight, he starts at, at a greater level. He has yeah. less to comp he has less to, to make up for when, yeah. when spring green up and crops and so forth. And then I know even you, I think you mentioned Iowa and Illinois, et cetera. I, I know in the Delta, it's, it's the, exact same way as you have it's feast and famine yeah and i think that's some of the the biggest things people can do in an ag region is you know you don't really need to worry as much about uh high protein foods now let's manage other openings and let's manage our forests for native plants that are also going to supplement and provide a more well-rounded you know uh, nutritional platform and then also is that we want to provide foods in the forest and in those openings uh, during the cool season and, and dormant season. Absolutely. And yeah. another great thing too, uh, a producer may not like this, but you know you can see where cover crops are so beneficial or following up with a, a wheat crop. Yeah, um, thousand percent. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, in my deal. head, I was thinking like the forest is pretty well famine mode year round. And then and when you go into lower coastal and then you go up to the Delta and it's feast or famine, depending on growing season or dormant season. But if you have the ability to, to provide cover crops, manage the, what, what forests you have or wooded acres you have, what odd areas or open areas that aren't crop, manage those into a food plot or whatever. Now you have feast year round. It kind of makes you go, oh, that's very similar to what your captive deer were experiencing with that, with the supplemental feeding throughout right. the throughout the period of time so and adam yeah a lot of of great areas and um folks who ha who have no shortage of that food supply but then because of the lack of managing the antlerless deer in that situation where it's like man look at all this food i've got um different times of the year there is this that component that we've already mentioned of just so many deer on the landscape that it yeah it other stress to it so it's like man trying to create this environment um to where we're really improving the overall health the fitness of individual animals it's a very complicated uh robust thing that we're trying to achieve um it's not just a food plot that's going to solve the the whole neighborhood's condition yeah there's a lot of factors here yeah 
you 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 hit the nail on the head and uh anybody that's worked with with hunting clubs and again i'm I'm not being judgmental because if i were in their shoes and wildlife biology and deer management uh, habitat management etc wasn't my forte i would probably conclude the same thing but um just going out and scratching out on a you know three four five hundred acre uh plot of land and scratching out a couple acres of food plots most people are going to be really disappointed with the product in terms of the expectation of bigger antlers yeah they're, they're gonna it'll be very successful in helping you see deer and even facilitate harvesting more deer so that you can start working on that density dependence mechanism you may have going on but if you think just adding half a percent of the landscape in cool season food plots and Boone and Crockett scores are going to jump by 20 inches. <laughs> yeah. Not going to happen. But I, and I think that's one thing, Bronson, where people get misconceived because they, they in the process of starting to plant the food plot, they start letting deer get older. So then they do see antlers increase, and they think, well, this food plot and these minerals that I started dumping out, I'm seeing bigger deer, but just the fact of letting them get older allowed them to see bigger deer. That's that. That's right. And and again, that that would be very very easy to confuse. And that's why you know scientifically we we have to control for all those factors. And you know you'll hear people like me and Steve and Marcus Lashley or Craig whoever we we always say age specific antler size. Yes. Yeah. You, you you always have to control was that from a three and a half year old buck or a five and a half year old buck and. Yeah, so speaking to your point, yes, that, yeah. that's very important and has to be controlled for. So, so I got, as we shift in, in the latter part of my notes here, because we're, we're running out of time and I haven't even got to cover it, so I'm going to make sure we get it covered. Another big thing that kind of comes into play for me in, in considering this generational um, change that you found in, in your research it, it includes dispersal. And yeah. we all know in free-ranging deer, you know, I this almost makes me cringe in my part of the world because I'm in timber country of the Ozarks, and not many people are managing for the uh, managing the forest at, at all. And uh, so it's like closed canopy forests and fescue pastures for miles and miles around me, and then I'm heavily managing uh, the timber and trying to do some woodland restorations, glade restorations, savanna restorations, old field management. And I just think, okay, yeah, I'm raising up these nice young bucks and then mama's kicking them off and my neighbors or my neighbor's neighbors are getting them and I'm getting my neighbor's neighbor's button bucks or yearling yep. bucks. And it's like, this, this is, un- this is an unfair world that I live in. <laughs> and yes, so it is. And, and when you consider dispersal, in, in this and in, in trying to tie it in with, with free range, um, free range deer and, and your research into, you know, the private land ownership, how big of an area do you feel comfortable even saying, okay, it's going to take a fairly large area to overall change the amount of food. Let's just say you take a timbered area and you're trying to replicate the amount of food that could be found in, in the Delta region. And you think, okay, well, I'm providing tons of herbaceous plants in the in the forest. We've got woody browse abundant, and it's on a thousand acres. Like, is this mm-hmm. something we could say? Yeah, you know, we're really ultimately we're going to change the the productiveness and the expression of the deer on this landscape, or are we fooling ourselves? Well, um, 
I, I don't think you're fooling yourself. I, I think there are going to be situations and scenarios where this type of change is going to be very, very unlikely mm-hmm. and scenarios where it can be very likely. And and unfortunately, you know, I, I wish I owned 10,000 acres. I'd invite y'all down to hunt. We'd record a podcast after the hunt, but <laughs> but, but I don't. But yeah, I do think the scale that we're talking about to influence, to facilitate this type of epigenetic and intergenerational, uh, I think you have to be on a landscape large enough to where the dispersal effect is is minimized. Mm-hmm. Now, that is, that's not to say, remember, yearling buck dispersal is not 100%. It's about, it's about 70%. And this is not to say, sure, absolutely, there are records of a yearling buck going 30 miles away. But most of the time, especially in the southeast, especially if you're in a more forested landscape matrix, it's three, four, or five miles away. Mm-hmm. And so now you start getting into, a, okay, all right, well, we, we could get a cooperative where we could get a footprint here of maybe 3,000 acres, and we're still going to lose some of those bucks. They're still going to disperse off the property, but if only about 30% are dispersing for various reasons, and we are routinely harvesting does, some of those does, most of them should have fawns that heal. Um, research has shown that you're going to reduce the likelihood of those bucks dispersing. Um, now you start getting into a situation where um, the odds are, are far more likely that you can, you can see this. Let, let me say this too. Um, small property size and dispersal in, in, in terms of this case and trying to get an epigenetic effect it, it, that is a, a hole in the bucket. There, there is no doubt about it. It's a hole in the bucket. But I think it's kind of that same scenario, guys, of what we have heard, at least at my age, for 20 to 30 years of, you know, if I don't shoot it, my neighbor is. There's always going to be issues with neighbors and so forth and harvesting the wrong bucks. And I just think now we're at a similar I wouldn't give up on nutrition just because you have 500 acres, because mm-hmm. some of those bucks are gonna are gonna hang around. I think you still have to put in the work and 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 do what you can do. You know, yeah. I don't know if on your acreage, when all around you, no one is cooperating either in terms of managing for nutrition or buck age structure. You you are at a disadvantage. There's no question yeah. about it. But I still think you are going to see improvements on your property and deer quality if you start prioritizing nutrition and cover and buck uh-huh. age structure. You're going to win a few times. Yeah. And if you didn't engage in that, you're never going to win. Yeah. Well, so here's my next question. In dispersal, is it triggered? Is it the instincts of that yearling buck or is it triggered by the mama doe? Because I've always heard that. You know, the mother doe is driving that young buck away um, as he matures, so he's off and away, and we can avoid inbreeding. Is it? Tr- yeah. Do we know? Is it triggered by mama, or is it triggered by uh, instincts, or both? I, my my vote, if I were to, to cast a bet, it would be both. But okay. the last time I did any meaningful 
uh, literature review on this topic was well over 10 years ago. And the, the buzzword at that time was it was all about what was called maternal aggression, uh-huh. that her attitude towards her male offspring changes and she makes living in her range inhospitable. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like the, the failure to launch stuff with a with, with a young man, <laughs> you, you got to get out of the house and get a job, you know. Um, yeah. But I also think that that it works both ways. Because in, you know, in, in most guys, you know, I'm a human characteristic here, um, most of them grow up and they want to get out of the house, too. So yeah. I, I can really see it being uh, a measure of both. It was just easier, I think, in a lot of those studies. It's easier. It's easier to observe behavior of a doe acting aggressively towards her offspring. Yeah. And so you, and so you kind of conclude that's what it is. Well, it, it's probably a little bit of both. Yeah, so I guess that's what brings on my next question. And boy, I I told you I was excited for this podcast to ask you and pick your brain. So ultimately, here's my question for you then. And and you can say you're you're out of your mind, you know, you, that's crazy thought. I'm just playing the the and it's something I advise my clients to never really do, but we're going to play the what if game. And so let's just say that what if there's a doe or group of does that are scattered across your your farm? We'll just take my farm and say that we can we we are able to manage about seven hundred acres, and of that active timber management and burning, doing everything we can to provide food year round, and then we have this these all these does that have been raised on this landscape of highly productive forests and food plots and everything, and then by age three they've they've dropped a couple of fawns, but at three or four they've lived there and they've matured on this landscape, and they have a button buck. And we're able to harvest that doe, and let's just say it is half half instinct and half maternal aggression. I wonder. I'll try to clean it up and not say just give me an answer, but I wonder if it's if if we could say that there's a better chance that those button bucks don't leave. Am I crazy? Uh, you're talking about the the button buck whose mother was harvested. Mother or, or was died. harvested and she, yeah, or died. And, and she grew up just like the first fawns that came to your facility. That's the, the ones that, and then they grew up with that, um, with all the resources that you were feeding them. And they didn't really change. The body weights on average weren't different, but their offspring were. And that's the offspring I'm mm-hmm. talking about managing and saying, okay, well, what if we harvested those does? Just like you guys could have pulled those the first generation of that research out, and now we're focused on the second generation, you pulled them out, and instead of having dispersal where these bucks left, you kept them on the farm or kept them in mm-hmm. the in the area at least. We know we can't just keep them mm-hmm. on the farm, but is it, you know, are we thinking, you know, it's a wild card guess, but to say that maybe we have the ability to to have a more productive buck and have bigger antlers because we were two generations in and we removed the doe that was likely going to lead them out because of maternal aggression. Mm -hmm. I think that's very reasonable to conclude. And, you know, there, there, there's always caveats and what ifs and all that sort of stuff. But, um, that is, uh, that is the logical approach I would take. 
Yeah. This is what you've described. Well, yes. son of a gun, look at there. I, to me, I just, I was thinking about that because I harvested, you know, we're actively, one thing we're trying to do on our farm is actively harvest does and never let it get out of control. I've, I've seen that on past farms and I'm like, we, I know one thing, I don't want too many deer. And when I shot, I shot several does and it was like, oh, there was, there was a button buck with her. Oh, well, I wonder now with dispersal if he's going to leave or he stays. We'll mm-hmm. never probably know unless they have a very distinct marking, but ultimately it makes me go, maybe this is something we focus more on. And, you know, I don't know. I just feel bad for all the adult does that drop buttons. Well, you know, Matt, you should feel the amount of does that you can. It seems like when you start really actively managing the, the habitat and all of a sudden the, the doe population or the, the deer population starts to, to come up, you're like, oh, my goodness. And you you start saying, I feel bad for all the does this fall that walk by me because I'm going to shoot as many as I can. But then it's like a bigger target. If you have a button buck, you, you're for sure getting getting removed. And, and the biggest prize would be a doe with twin buck fawns. <laughs> there you go. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's hunted down like a hitless buck. And That's then ultimately, you know, you're looking, trying to figure out, is this a is this a year-and-a-half-old uh, doe or a two-and-a-half-year-old, or is this this the lead doe that's got a, f- a face nine foot long? Like, that doe is old, and she's lived yeah. here a long time on this healthy landscape, and she's got a button buck. She definitely is going. Yeah. Yeah. I, and that, that can be hard to tell. Sometimes you can identify okay. the but, – but, from the really, you know, oblong head like you like yeah. you were describing that other times you'll be fooled. Yeah. And many times I thought this is going to be a two and a half year old doe and I look at the mandible and holy smokes, five and a half plus. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, we can make as hunters a, a lot of those observations. And um, I think it's only natural to, to want to have this uh, more of an influence on the neighborhood, on the deer um, with our harvest or, or what we don't harvest. Um, but a lot of it at the end of the day, and they're wild animals, they are, they're doing their own thing. And sure, let's use the science that we know and the behavior and the characteristics of these animals as, as a whole, as a population, but also as individuals, because some do act differently within a certain population, but like we can't only do so much, but it is getting to know, Hey, we might be able to have on this this scale, this micro scale, a bigger influence if we're selecting certain animals within this population. We might start to see the benefit of our long term habitat management strategy strategy coincide with our harvesting strategy uh, of the the specific deer in the neighborhood. Yeah, and I, I think the you know, a, a person can only do what, what they can do. Um, mm-hmm. I think in, in terms of, of setting up a sustainable system is a little phrase I, I often use and some people it may click with and some people it may, may not like it, but uh, deer management, the, the kind of, of system we're talking about, <clears throat> it's, it's not a diet pill. Mm-hmm. And people are just looking for the this one product or this one little activity, and there's going to be this overwhelming magazine cover, you know, response. And it, it does not work like that. And so and I'll even say it this way. Our, our research findings here 
you know, it sounds like y'all found it, it very interesting, but but I would dare say our research findings does not change the way you're managing a property. Mm-hmm. You're still doing the same things you have always done. You are developing, uh, you're trying to maximize nutrition a, as well as cover. Mm-hmm. And, having, and having a reasonable harvest regime that's going to keep deer density appropriate and uh, doing your best to ensure the survival of bucks until they're, whatever your goal is, three plus, four plus, five plus. Mm-hmm. So our findings are just saying that, you know, if, if there was any take home, any, any actionable thing, it would be, if possible, developing a cooperative to where you can work at a bigger, bigger scale. You know, the, the 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 10, you know, if you can start putting together enough of a footprint on the landscape where now you have generation after generation are getting above average for your county, for your neck of the woods, if they are getting above average nutrition, then you're probably going to see an above average phenotypic response in terms of antlers mm-hmm. and body size and so forth. Yeah. For me, the take home when I read it, it was like this, this just reiterates that simply doing t- 10 acres of food plots on your couple hundred acres is not changing anything. Like if you want to make an impact, of course, create a co-op if possible, but manage, maximize every acre you have on your property. As far as if you have timber, start looking at consulting with a forester and, and thinning that thinning that forest, burning that forest, trying to get as much food on it as possible because we need to really look at, you're not managing for a specific deer, you're managing generations here if you really want to make a change. That's right. If yeah. you're in it for the long in it for the long haul, that's precisely mm-hmm. yeah. right. Oh, man. What an awesome uh, research project. I love this podcast. Probably going to go down as one of my all-time favorites when we're talking white-tailed deer and, and really getting into the fine-tuning of management here because there's just so much great stuff. I encourage everybody to go and listen to the MSU Deer Lab podcast. Um, Bronson, how can they find you? Um, probably the best thing <clears throat> is um, if uh, you can find us on social media, if you just and we're on all the, the platforms at Facebook and Instagram, Twitter and so forth. Um, if you just search MSU Deer Lab, you know, within Facebook or whatever platform, it, it should pop up. If you just go online is a good place to start as well. Go look at our website. We really put a lot of time and a very quick story here. About 10 years ago, Steve and I were thinking, you know, we ought to write a, a, a book um about deer management and specifically deer management in mississippi and we started writing all these this topic that time you know we had an outline three pages long and then we said you know what why don't we just make that a website all those topics about parasites and diseases and and the rut and antlers and you know on and on and on and uh, and we built a website so if you want to go there and click around and, and and see a lot of the stuff that's there uh but but our Con, our uh, contact information can be found there. And then if you were listening to this, it probably means you are a podcast listener. And uh, if you'd like to listen to ours, it's called Dear University, Dear University, and it's on all the major podcast platforms. So awesome. that's how you can get a hold of us. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Bronson, we, we thank you so much for coming on and, and 
talking about it. Now, I know we're going to have to have – my brain is racing because I've got follow-up questions, so we're going to roll around and probably have you on the podcast sometime uh, later this year again to talk more. So, My pleasure, gentlemen. Happy to help. Thank you for your time, sir. We appreciate it. You bet. Anytime. <laughs>